I'm the Reverend Maria McCabe. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and hers. And it is a joy to be here with all of you. Our spiritual theme for October, for the month of October, is belonging, which brings up so many things for us to reflect on. I'm, this morning, we're going to reflect on some questions that begin with this question of who am I? Where do I belong? And whose am I? I think in many ways we are living in this moment in an epidemic of not belonging. So we will, we will explore these things together. Our invocation this morning comes from the poet Richard Blanco, who uh, some of you may know of. He's the first gay person and the first Latinx poet to be invited to deliver an inaugural poem, uh, which he did for President Barack Obama. Richard Blanco also was one of the uh, uh, featured uh, speakers at our Unitarian Universalist General Assembly in the summer, and he was spellbinding to listen to in, uh, in person. This particular piece is called The Declaration of Interdependence. Such has been the patient sufferance. We're a mother's bread, instant potatoes, milk at a checkout line. We're her three children pleading for bubblegum and their father. We're the three minutes she steals to page through a tabloid, needing to believe even a star's lives are as joyful and bruised. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We're her second job serving an executive absorbed in his Wall Street Journal at a sidewalk cafe shadowed by skyscrapers. We are the shadows of the fortune he won and the family he lost. We're his loss and the lost. We're a father in a cold town who can't mine a life anymore because too much and too little has happened for too long. A history of repeated injuries and usurpations. Where the grit of his main streets, blacked out windows and graffitied truths, where a street in another town lined with royal palms at home with a Peace Corps couple who collect African art. Where their dinner party talk of wines, wielded picket signs and burned draft cards. Where what they know. It's time to do more than read the New York Times by fair trade coffee and organic corn. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress. We are the farmer who grew the corn, who plows into his couch as worn as his back by the end of the day, where his TV set, blaring news, having everything and nothing to do with the field dust in his eyes, or his son nested in the ache of his arms. We're his son. We're a black teenager who drove too fast or too slow, 
talked too much or too little, moved too quickly or not quick enough, with a blast of the bullet leaving the gun where the guilt and the grief of the cop who wished he hadn't shot. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We are the gone, we are the living amid the flicker of vigil candlelight. We are in a dim cell with an inmate reading Dostoevsky, where his crime, his sentence, his amends, we are the mending of ourselves and others. We're a Buddhist serving soup at a shelter alongside a stockbroker. We are each other's shelter and hope. A widow's 50 cents in a collection plate and a golfer's $10,000 pledge for a cure. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We're the cure for hatred caused by despair. We're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name. The tattooed man who gives up his seat on the subway. We are every door held open with a smile when we look into each other's eyes the way we behold the moon. We're the moon. We're the promise of one people, one breath, declaring to one another, I see you, I need you, I am you. Our reading this morning comes from one of my favorite writers, Starhawk. Anybody familiar with Starhawk? Yes. She's someone I've admired and learned from for a long time. She says, we are all longing to go home to some place we have never been, a place half remembered and half envisioned we can only catch glimpses of from time to time, community. Somewhere there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere a circle of hands will open to receive us, Eyes will light up as we enter. Voices will celebrate with us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold us when we falter, a circle of healing, a circle of friends. Someplace where we can be free. And she closes by saying, may our time together be another step on our journey home. So this may not come as a huge surprise to you, but your minister was not a particularly cheerful teenager. There, it might be said she was downright surly, maybe even depressed, although we didn't talk about these things at least in my circles at that time. 
But my years as a teenager were not particularly easy ones for me. See, my family, uh, we had lived in Spain for several years, and it had been a time where I had felt that I belonged. For that period of time, I hadn't spoken English. I had been in a school that I loved. I was always a nerdy kid. Again, nerds weren't something we talked about then. I, was, I always loved school. I always loved learning. I was in a community. We lived in a neighborhood in Madrid where there were a bunch of kids, and every night we'd hang out on the street and, you know, just play. <laughs> and our parents didn't worry about us and didn't tell us to come home because, well, they didn't want us to come home. <laughs> And I, I remember there were, I, I have to tell you this one story because it, it occurred to me as I was preparing this message this morning. And I, I remember that there was a learning curve. I mean, there was, because this was, you know, kind of the early 1960s and the country lived under Francisco Franco, one of the really all-time worst fascist dictators ever. And the ways and the culture were different from what I had experienced either in Puerto Rico or the United States. So we, we would bring lunches to school, and I remember the first time I brought a banana, which is always one of my favorite fruits, and I looked around and I realized that everybody was eating their fruit with a knife and fork. <laughs> I pulled my hand back and watched how they did this so that I could figure out how to cut and eat a banana, and I was very proud of myself when I finally learned. I learned how to fit in, and I came to feel that I belonged. This was, this was a special time. And then after several years there, we moved back to the United States. And it was, it was a shock. It was very different. It was different from what I remembered, and it was, it, well, let's put it this way, it wouldn't have been my choice to move back, but I didn't have a choice was noisy, it felt aggressive, it felt big, it felt challenging. And I came to school, I came, I was put in the eighth grade, um, even though I was a year younger than, I, well, I skipped a grade, so I was put in the eighth grade. And as hard as I tried to fit in, and I did try, as hard as I tried, I just couldn't do it. And I remember, I remember trying to, in the same way that I had watched those kids cut up their bananas, I tried to watch to see if I could figure out what the rules were, right? And, and in my mind, even though I couldn't have said this to you, the rules were, well, if you can do it the way everyone else does, you will belong, and, and I couldn't figure out the rules. <laughs> I remember high school dances, which at the time were about the equivalent of the ninth circle of hell. <laughs> I'm hoping they're way better now. Um, but I remember this ritual, some of you may be old enough to remember this, where all the girls were on, like, lined up on one side of the gym, 
all talking to each other, pretending like we weren't paying attention to the line of boys on the opposite side of the gym, and we weren't noticing who, which one of them was brave enough to cross that gigantic space to come and ask one of us to dance. Oh, my God, that was awful. <laughs> it really was. I imagine that I could sit down with each and every one of you and we could recall together spaces and times in our lives when we didn't belong or we didn't know how to belong. And it might have been a moment here or there or it might have been an experience that went on for longer. But that sense of not being in the right place we're not knowing or not feeling secure in the space where we are. It's an experience that I believe, or at least that I've observed, is becoming more and more common in our world. I said at the beginning of today's service that I, I think we're living in an epidemic of not belonging. We're living in a time where it seems as though we are trying to figure out the rules and trying to observe and trying to, to grasp onto those things that will help make us feel as though we belong. And some of those things are working and some of them are not. According to the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, as of the beginning of this year, there were almost... 71 million people on this beautiful planet of ours. 71 million people forcibly displaced from their homes. So some form of violence has pushed 71 million people from their home. This does not include additional millions and millions of people who are internally displaced. Think, for example, about uh, immigrants and undocumented immigrants in our country not receiving the benefits of government services or regulations. To put that number in context, my friends, every two seconds, a human being is displaced from their home. So in the time that it took me to speak that sentence, two to three people have lost their place to live. DNA testing services are experiencing an explosion in popularity. Some scientists at MIT published a research study, I think it was in February of this year. I don't remember the name of the publication. But according to their research, 25 million people in the United States have had their DNA tested by one of the, you know, you know you've seen all the commercials, right, have had their DNA tested. And this represents a, an enormous increase, and they projected that if this number continues to grow in another year, 100 million people in the United States will have sought 
to have their DNA tested. Now, I know there are many reasons for doing that, and I don't presume to know what all of those are. Some of them are medical. Some of them are out curiosity. But I can't help but wonder whether some of that is a yearning, a yearning to know who we are and where we belong. A yearning maybe to belong to something, to know for certain, to have science tell us you belong in this place in this community. You've seen the commercials, right? Right? There's the the guy in some kilt or, you know, uh, Ricola outfit or something saying, I used to always think I was a Swiss, I don't know, cow herder, and now I know that I am 27%, I don't know what, I'll make things up, 27% Finnish and 15% Native American, and his costume changes, which is a subject for a whole other sermon. We're going to stay on point this morning. One of the slogans, one of the slogans is, unlock your past, inspire your future. Somehow, we are asking for a different kind of knowledge about who we are and where we belong. So many of the markers that many of us have taken for granted don't exist anymore. You know, we remember when the United States was the great melting pot? And now it's not, right? Now it's not. And as we go through these, these seemingly rapid fire changes and we discover and we start talking about identities and this answer, identity being the answer to the question of who am I, and we start to explore different aspects of what makes us different and what makes us unique. As national boundaries don't seem to mean what they might have 40 or 50 or 100 years ago. I mean, with 71 million people displaced, everyone isn't living in their own little, right, in their own little boxes anymore. It can feel very disconcerting. Where do I belong? Do I belong on this side of the aisle or on this side of the aisle? Do I belong with people who think the way I do or with people who look like me? How do I know where you belong? I don't know that there are great answers to these questions, but what I'd like to do, or what I'd like to suggest to you this morning, is that we take that question a step further and, and, and maybe flip it. 
and ask ourselves, not who am I, but whose am I? So that instead of like that hapless teenager that I was trying to, trying to find acceptance in, a, in trying to make the world around me accept me, if I ask the question, whose am I? I am saying I can be, I can provide belonging to others. I can be a part of that place that welcomes others. That circle of healing that Starhawk talks about. That place where eyes light up. Reminds you sort of a little bit of the old Cheers program, doesn't it? Where everybody knows your name. So what are the questions what are the questions that go along with whose am I? The uh, Douglas Steer was a, a Quaker mystic and professor who worked largely in the mid-20th century. Of course, as a Quaker, he was a devout Christian. But he wrote, he wrote, one cannot be a human being alone. One cannot be a human being alone, which is kind of a provocative question. Great question for a potluck lunch. But then he said, let's ask whose we are. And part of his answer was that he, when he said, whose am I, his answer was the God he believed in. But let me put the questions in a, a more expansive way, in a way that fits with our Unitarian Universalist faith tradition. Who needs me? Who loves me? To whom am I accountable? To whom do I answer? Whose life is altered by my choices? With whose life is my life all bound up. I think I know for myself, when I begin to answer those questions, my perspective on belonging or fitting in, my perspective changes. It really does. When I think about who loves me and to whom I am accountable and whose life is altered by my choices, changes my behavior. So that I might just send back the plastic straw. Or God help me buy a Prius. <laughs> or begin to recognize what that actually, what we affirm in our faith, when we affirm that we are part of the interdependent web of all existence, that that means something. That I can't just pick and choose who's in my web. 
that actually we're all connected. That we're all connected by these relationships of accountability and these relationships of love and these relationships of helping one another belong and be a part of something we long to be a part of. Asking these questions, my beloved, is actually what gives me, what not just gives me, it fills me with hope. It makes me realize I don't need to try to fit into some super narrow category in order to be liked or tolerated. It makes me recognize that our human tribe, our human tribe can learn because we are learning. We can learn to be with one another and work with one another and accept one another in different and new ways. That community won't be determined by the categories we've always set for ourselves that inherently divide us. And that each of us can bring all of our identities and all of who we are and all of who we are becoming together. We can learn to, you know, give our pronouns and accept new ways of describing things. One of our great um, Unitarian Universalist uh, historians is Mark Morrison Reed, who I, I've probably, I think I've probably talked with you about him before. I, I love him dearly. He's, <laughs> he's a universalist and he just cries with joy all the time. But he says that the primary, the great task of religious community is to unveil the ties that bind us. What a great sentiment and what a great way for us to re-explore and to be who we are. And we can practice that here. You know, we do practice that here in small ways and big ways by bringing more cookies and candy, did you say? <laughs> and healthy snacks <laughs> to, to one another. Thank you, dear ones. Thank you for making community with me and thank you for inviting me to make community with you. Ashe, amen, and blessed be. My beloved, may we be the arms to hold us when we falter. May we be a circle of healing and a circle of friends. And may we be a place where we can all be free. Be blessed. <laughs>